We should pray for young people who are growing up. As I was saying to someone else at the break, there are issues regarding Christians. And remember, there's a difference between the church corporate addressing the state. Confession says that, that should only come in extraordinary cases. For example, when a state allows the, killing, the killing of the unborn, that's an extraordinary case. Um, I think also when you have any of the creation ordinances, anything that would violate marriage, same-sex marriage is clearly a violation of a, of, a, of a creation ordinance. Those, in my opinion, are extraordinary cases. But as Christians, individually, you ought to be, as the Lord gives you opportunity, minimal, minimally by voting, but also by way of letters or meeting with your representatives, raising your concerns. Uh, but it is very heartening uh, that there are schools now that are training young Christian young people so that they know uh, how to work in government positions and how to address uh, biblical issues on the state level. And uh, so, so we should be encouraged. And that's why it's such a thrill to have so many young people here uh, because uh, should the Lord tarry when our bodies are in the ground, these young people are going to be addressing these issues in ways we cannot. So praise the Lord for that. Turning your Bibles to Daniel chapter 4. The notes for this are page 24. This is Wednesday, June 19th, morning session number 2. Let's pray together. Once again, our Lord, we pray that you will give us the spirit of the meek and the lowly and the humble of heart that we will receive your word, not first to Nebuchadnezzar, but your word to us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. The most clear, fundamental, and consistent principle of God's dealing with his creatures is God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. His most clear, fundamental, and consistent principle of his dealing with his creatures is God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. James 4, verse 7, and 1 Peter 5, and verse 5, among others, explicitly or implicitly teach this in the Scriptures. Charles Bridges, in his commentary on Proverbs, said the most awful strength of divine eloquence seems to be concentrated on the delineation of the character and the ruin of pride. The most graphic biblical illustration of that principle is in Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar has issued a royal statement. He makes a confession of the events in the last years of his life. There is a dream which he calls on Daniel's abilities to interpret. Here is a massive tree that will be hewn down, leaving a fettered stump to dwell in the forest with animals. Daniel's response embodying the principles of any Christian response to authority is A, a humble respect for God's anointed authority and second, honest, pointed speech that held back nothing of God's word to the king. The tree represented Nebuchadnezzar. The kingdom would be taken from him. There would be sore judgments until he acknowledged the rule of the God of heaven. God would resist the king of Babylon. God resisting the proud in the original language means God sets his power against the proud. 
This chapter is one of the most thought-provoking and awesome illustrations of the power of God in all of Scripture, and I remind you that it is the God who rules over each of you in the person of His Son. And it was given to New Covenant people in Hebrews 10 to hear these words, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Nebuchadnezzar will learn that. Verse 28. In the preface to this section, we learn of the sureness of God's promises. All of this came upon Nebuchadnezzar. God spoke in a dream and through the interpretation of Daniel things that he would do. He spoke of warning, even as he speaks of blessing. And his words will come to pass. For I am the Lord, I will speak, and the word I speak will come to pass. That is the foundation of the assurance of our faith. That is the foundation of the assurance you have when you come near to death, that there is an entrance into everlasting life for you who are faithful to Christ by grace. Jesus tells us that he did not come to destroy or condemn the world, but to save it. And whoever lives and believes in him will never die. You have that assurance because of his word. And we love those assurances. God also gives us assurances that he will judge. And he has done that. He's teaching the world and he's teaching Israel and teaching us that when he speaks, we better listen. Verse 29. A year elapses. Nebuchadnezzar is walking about the royal palace of Babylon. Apparently he had repented sufficiently. But at least a year had gone by he is still living in ease and luxury and walking probably on the roof of the magnificent summer palace known as the Hanging Garden of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the world. We could imagine that he is thinking back wistfully on his reign, a well-engineered, a masterfully engineered conquest of all the world under Nebuchadnezzar. Peace and prosperity came under the leadership skills of Nebuchadnezzar. There was the rebuilding and marvelous establishment of the capital city of Babylon. There were temples to Marduk and Nabu, and there were many shrines with statues made of the finest of precious metals. The city was surrounded by a massive, unbreakable defense of walls around the city, and his own residence was also listed as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This was the Babylon the Great of the Old Testament. And he is indulging in his own self-satisfaction. Verse 30, the king spoke saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? It is under my reign. I was responsible for these things. These are by my own orders. And watch how Nebuchadnezzar learns what it is to be humbled under the mighty hand of God. While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. Why does this come? 
Remember, God's judgments are related to man's ways. This is not open theism in which God looks to see what our move is going to be on the chessboard of human history and he decides what to do next. But rather, in the inscrutable providences of God, there is a connection between the exercise of man's responsibilities, faithfully or unfaithfully, and the judgments that God meets out to them. The principle here, where Nebuchadnezzar had expressed his pride, God says he will resist the proud. What is pride? Pride is an I problem. I, 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 me, 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 my, my, my. Embodied in verse 30 in Nebuchadnezzar, I have built my mighty power for the honor of my own majesty. He had drawn attention to himself living in an egocentric universe, center of his own world. What is pride? It is mental and verbal treason against the king of kings. Pride is an attitudinal dethroning of God. There may not be a word spoken, but by the look, the demeanor, the attitude, Christ is dethroned from His throne and we make ourselves to be the center not of our universe, but of the universe. Everything revolves around my views, my my opinions, my desires, my goals, and my accomplishments. Why is pride such treason? Did Nebuchadnezzar, or do you, have any ability apart from God? Is there any energy for Nebuchadnezzar to do these things, or any energy for you to do other than what God gives? Is there any life for Nebuchadnezzar or for you other than by God's grant and by God's will? Are not our possessions and our successes something that come by God Himself, by His decree? The Apostle Paul says, What have we that we have not received? Does the pot have the right to sit on the potter's wheel and boast of its accomplishment. To all puny, sin-marred specks of dust that want to question the sovereignty of God in election and reprobation and in all of God's decrees of providence, the Apostle Paul's answer is, who are you to reply against God? Who was Nebuchadnezzar to reply against God. But he did. And so do every one of us. Pride is the most common form of rebellion against the Lord of hosts. Pride is to the soul what HIV is to the body. It will destroy you. John Calvin said that pride is the greatest enemy against which God fights. There is no other place in the Bible where God says He resists a particular trait of character, but He says it of pride. Verses 32 and 33, God resists Nebuchadnezzar's pride. And they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you until you know 
that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. Brothers and sisters, Nebuchadnezzar had to learn to fear God's pronouncements. Our confessional standards say that true faith not only believes the promises, but it trembles at the warnings and acts differently upon the precepts of the Word of God. You have a terribly truncated faith if all you do is believe the promises of everlasting life. Do you tremble at the warnings of God? Do you give obedience to the precepts of God joyfully because God has spoken them and Christ gives you grace to obey? God declared His threatening to Nebuchadnezzar and in verse 33, that very hour, the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. And brothers and sisters, God gets so specific about how His Word is fulfilled toward one person to teach you and all people, this is an Aramaic, it's for the world to read, that all of God's words that He speaks about all people at any place at any time will be fulfilled. At that very hour, the Word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird claws. Now when you explain this to your children, this is a true story. This, your children are going to read this and they're going to think of some kind of a science fiction movie like a werewolf movie. And they're going to tend to think that science fiction is not real, so this isn't real. You impress upon your children, this is a true story. A real man acted like, lived like, and for a while even looked like an animal. Now for adults, what is this? Well, some would call this lycanthropy or other zoanthropy, but in either case, it is a known form of insanity that has been written about in medical journals. In lycanthropy or zoanthropy, a person retains his human consciousness and yet is totally dominated by a form of speech and actions of another, for example, of a wolf or of an ox. And this, in the providence of God, is what befell Nebuchadnezzar. Here is a fettered stump. He knew that he was a king but he was possessed by a power that controlled him. This king who looked out from rooftops and buildings as the one who had made that empire is made to dwell with the animals, the lizards and the snakes of the field living like the very beasts over which he had had dominion. God, you see, will humble people by smiting the object of which they are proud. God will humble people by smiting the object of which they are proud. This is why parents, while it is wonderful to be brought up in a day in which there is a greater emphasis on what it is to bring up our children in the Lord, you be careful. Because in not a very long period of time, you can begin to make little idols out of these children God has given you. 
You see it in certain Christian education movements in which my family and my education of my family becomes more important than church and ministry of the Word and the people of God. That's idolatry. God will humble people by smiting the object of which they are proud. David boasted in his men one million three hundred thousand men of Israel and Judah, the census in which David would boast. And God sent a plague killing 70,000 of them. Hezekiah shows the riches of the temple in which he boasts. And the temple and the possessions are sacked. One who proudly gives his body to sexual perversion experiences some form of sexually transmitted disease that affects the very body in which he had boasted his prowess. A woman who adorns her body for promiscuity sees the effects of aging and disease because she boasted in that thing that was her idol. Our nation will reach up to the skies of heaven with its spacecraft. We will plumb the depths and we will find all of the ultimate truths of the origin of the universe until a space shuttle challenger is blown up in midair. We have experienced a major malfunction. We experience God saying, I resist the proud. And even as God took this oak, this tree, this massive tower of a king, God also took towers in which our nation and the world boasted. And God said, I resist the proud. I read a statement last night in reading some other material on Daniel, preparing myself for this. I would not read it before, but I could not do this without reading this to you today. Listen to how appropriate and powerful it is. Commenting on the fact that Nebuchadnezzar had to be dealt with twice severely by way of one severe dream and now this in a judgment. Commenting on what it means that God must sometimes send a message more than once. This writer, John Calvin, said this, When God wishes to lead us to repentance... He is compelled to repeat his blows continually, either because we are not moved, when he, and when he chastens us with his hand, or we seem roused for the time, and then we return again to our former torpor. God is compelled to redouble his blows. There are many Christians that are praying as you are for God's mercy in our land. We are praying that God bring biblical reformation and biblical revival. That God convert the lost and draw many to praise Him. And as bad as our nation is, at least there are many Christians so praying. Our nation has not gotten the message from September 11th. If anything, it's gotten harder. When God wishes to lead us to repentance, as people are praying we will be in our land, he is compelled to repeat his blows continually, 
either because we are not moved when He chastises us with His hand, or we seem roused for the time, and then we return again to our former torpor. He is therefore compelled to redouble His blows. I'll let you make the application. God doubled His blow on Nebuchadnezzar as He makes him an animal of the field. But God, having resisted the proud, gives grace to the humble. Verses 34 to 36. And at the end of the time, however long or short that period was, some believe it was a seven-year period, we don't know for sure, but at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. I will lift mine eyes unto the hills, from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. You know, even animals are better than we are in so many ways. You ever watch a pig eat? When a pig eats, he puts his snout up to heaven and eats. Too many Christians don't even look to heaven when they get their food. Nebuchadnezzar looked up to heaven and my understanding was returned to me. When he said he looked up to heaven, he was acknowledging the fact that is given in verse 17. This is given, Daniel says, that you might know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men. Daniel now, or Nebuchadnezzar now knows that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men. Not a jot or a tittle of God's word is going to pass till all be fulfilled. Nebuchadnezzar was going to learn his lesson. And as a result, his understanding is returned to him. Now he is able to function as a man. The band of iron and brass is removed. One thinks of the demoniac. The demoniac whom Jesus healed, who lived among the tombs, who had the strength that people possessed by demonic influences seemed to have. He could break the chains even as he only dwelt on death. Like so much of the music of our day that dwells on death. And these performers seem to have such remarkable strength that comes to that. You've got to wonder how that doesn't line up with these elements of demonic possession. But when King Jesus changed his heart, he was found clothed. He had repented of his nakedness, sitting at the feet of Jesus and in his right mind. All that is outside of Christ is out of its mind because Christ is the truth. Nebuchadnezzar's understanding is returned to him and the evidence of it is he blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who is forever because He praised in response to God's judgments. God's people are humbled before God's judgments. If God's people don't want to hear of the judgments of God, one's got to wonder if they are God's people. Nebuchadnezzar is humbled and he worships in what is the substance of his praise. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth, including I, me, myself, 
all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. You know what Isaiah says about the nations of the earth? Isaiah says the nations of the earth are as drops of condensation on a bucket. If that's true of a nation, and all the nations, as one drop of condensation, then my friend, what is one nation? What is one state? What are you? All the nations, all are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will. In the army of heaven, I, who have led the armies of the earth to conquer the whole known world, I acknowledge that this God reputes even me as nothing and does according to his will with the armies of heaven far greater than my armies. And among the inhabitants of the earth, including myself, remember this was written in an Aramaic tongue so that the secular world could hear this testimony. And among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? The substance of his praise is the sovereignty of God. Saul is converted. His first words, Lord, Lord, Lord. There isn't a question in the Lordship controversy. Must Jesus be your Lord as well as your Savior? Well, wherever that question came up, it didn't come up in the Bible. Lord, what will you have me to do? When God works grace in you and in anyone else, you will say before this God who reveals himself in his book, I am but dust and I am but sinful dust at that. And all power in heaven and on earth is in you. God, be merciful to me, so said the publican, God be merciful to me, the sinner. And I would suggest that if that's not your attitude, you better prostrate yourself before the God of grace and ask for mercy. Because if that is not your view of God, then you have an idol and idolaters do not go to heaven. When people have problems with the doctrine of election and reprobation, in most cases, it is not because of a mental difficulty. It is because of a heart problem that will not accept God as He is revealed in Holy Scripture. And when people want to arrogate them to themselves even the right in their own wills to make their own decisions in which they are autonomous before which God's sovereignty must bow, I would suggest they know nothing of the Christ of the Bible who said, without me, you can do nothing at all. Nebuchadnezzar learned that lesson. Is that your attitude? That is the true humility which attends genuine salvation. Verse 36. 
Nebuchadnezzar confesses the sovereignty of God and his grace and at the same time my reason returned to me. Until people confess the sovereignty of God and the kingship of Christ they're without good reason. doesn't mean you hate them. doesn't mean you don't love them. It means you pity them. And you work to see them know the truth of God as it is in Christ. At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. And I was restored to my kingdom. And excellent majesty was added to me. God held His throne, probably in the hands of His Son, and returned it to His King with even greater blessing. Excellent majesty was added to me. And what is the lesson? Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all whose works are truth and His ways justice. And those who walk in pride, He is able to put down. Was this a true conversion, an Old Testament sense of that word? Will we see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven? Well, we don't know for sure. People have noted that this is a true statement of God in the Old Testament. He is the King of heaven. He is the Lord of lords. And it is coupled with worship without which there is no true conversion. It is a personal confession. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and honor and extol the King of heaven. But that's not the main issue of the chapter. The main issue of the chapter is those that walk in pride, he is able to abase. That's victory number four for Jehovah. Nebuchadnezzar realizes that he is not number one, but Jehovah is. An inspired purpose from this utterance of a pagan king for all the world to learn. God has the power to raise up. God has the power to put down. And he'll do it. He'll do it. By way of application, number one, regarding national leaders, what is a Christian perspective on world history? I would suggest verses like these will give you a framework for that. Isaiah 10 and verses 12 through 16, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his haughty looks. For he says, by the strength of my hand I've done it. The Lord of hosts will consume the glory of his fruitful field. As Syria was number one in its day, God consumed its glory. Ezekiel 28, 1-10, including these words, Say to the prince of Tyre, Thus says the Lord God, Because your heart is lifted up and you say, I am a God. Behold, I will bring up strangers against you and they will defile your splendor. Tyre and Phoenicia, barely even known anymore as empires of the past. Ezekiel 29, 3-5 Behold, I am against you, O Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who has said, My river is my own. I've made it for myself. What an arrogant declaration that is. It is slightly akin to people who were not there, 
who work with an infinitesimally small grain of all of the information of the universe who pontificate on how the universe was made. I've made it for myself. God says to Egypt, I'll put hooks in your jaws and I'll cause the fish of the rivers. I'm going to cause the fish of the river that you worship to stick to your scales. I'll make what you think is your source of blessing to be your own judgment. Richard Nixon, as a greatest political engine probably of any president of the last half of the 20th century. And God used that political engine to humble him and get him out of office. Those who are proud, God is able to abase. And for the Christian and the non-Christian, the message is, God resists the proud. Listen to a pagan. Those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. Pride is mental and verbal treason, an aggravation of ordinary thanklessness, to arrogate to oneself ultimate power. God brings punishment to that. But notice that in this chapter, it isn't kings that are addressed. Nebuchadnezzar was a king. But this is an individual who's addressed. It is an individual fulfillment to an individual just like you and just like me. And because there's an individual singled out, then we should make an individual application. God sets himself my brothers and sisters, against our pride and the pride of any other mere mortal. There are very few things about which God says, I hate. But in Proverbs 8 and verse 13, God says, pride and arrogance I hate. Why? Because it is puny man wanting to make himself out to be God, practically speaking. There are six things that the Lord hates. Even seven. Proud looking eyes and a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not go unpunished. Proverbs 16 and verse 5. One with business success, home and family, you've made it. God can bring failure and misery. God will bring down the house of the proud. Academic and sports achievements. Ask Johnny Erickson, preparing to be an Olympic swimmer, diving into a pool so shallow that she broke her neck and became a quadriplegic. In an instant, God brought a crippling malady to this one who by her own confession boasted in her own sports achievements. Gifts and piety, God can take them away. I have seen it in ministers. Ministers, godly and earnest and serious men, who like Nebuchadnezzar become proud in their accomplishments, and God permits them to have the moral lapse to humble them. A gorgeous figure and a handsome face which God can disfigure in an instant. 
Those who are proud, God is able to abase. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 16, 18, and 19. But why would a loving God do such things? Because God doesn't want your pride. He doesn't want your work. He doesn't want your empire. He doesn't want your successes. He doesn't want your money. He doesn't want your house. He doesn't want or need your fame. It is you that He wants. He wants you to be a trophy of His grace. God gives grace to the humble. God's grace is absolutely sovereign. It is not influenced by the will of man in any sense of the word. And yet at the same time, it is true that God's grace only fills empty vessels. And if you're proud with yourself, there won't be any space for the grace of God. God will empty you that you might be filled with His grace. He gives grace to the humble. And besides, what is true success? John Gotti was a successful Don. He was a successful con man in New York. Arguably the leader of the crime families, even over the Bambino family, Gambino family. And the symbol of John Gotti's success was floral arrangements that it took two people to carry in the funeral homes, so many you couldn't even fit them in. But above all, a special, tremendously expensive, Italian, tailor-made designer suit with which he was dressed in his casket. That's success. Or is it success when a broken failure is reconciled to his maker through Christ? See, the world looks and says, what a failure that is. My friend, if your failure breaks you, so that you are poor in spirit and Jesus fills you with His grace, you're a success. What is more powerful, an egotistical preacher who boasts in his hundreds or a much afflicted pastor who's been forced to his knees for grace? You know who Walter Copeland was? Walter Copeland was a virtually unknown Orthodox Presbyterian minister who was called to a little OP congregation in West Barnstable, Massachusetts. A little dying congregation, faithful people, church that had gone through a series of trials and difficulties over a decade. And that dear godly brother Walter Copeland, the only person I've ever read that wrote wrote like Walter Copeland was Robert Murray McShane. That dear unknown brother was willing to go to that church and roll up his shirt sleeves and work. Shortly after he came there, he was diagnosed as having terminal cancer. And for about a year, Walter Copeland preached, not knowing whether that would be his last Sunday to preach or not. I'd give anything to preach one sermon like that man. That's success. And God did things in that little congregation that had never happened there. People got really serious about a Christ who is life. That's real success. What's more beautiful? A haughty movie star like beauty 
or a short, stocky girl who humbly cultivates godliness instead of trying to look like Britney Spears. You see, young people, some of you can't change your physique that much. The Lord's made you short, you're short. Some of you got bigger bones. And you're not going to look like Britney Spears unless you nearly kill yourself. And some girls do. With anorexia and bulimia, they've got an idol of a thin gal. There's nothing more beautiful than godliness. I've seen it right here. And ladies in this church who cultivated godliness over the years, and there's nothing like it. It's another thing that the world looks at. I've ministered to women whose lives have been battered and bruised by ungodly lifestyles. And at 35, they look like 70. And thank God I've dealt with many women like so many I see here who at age 70 look like they're 35 because of the beauty of godliness. That's real success. And it comes to those who are humble before God. And that's real beauty. Affliction to Nebuchadnezzar and to you is God's desire to give you grace. That's what it is. Affliction, weakness, a sense of impotence, a sense of failure and bankruptcy, and even a soul-crushing sense of your own sin is to prepare you to be a recipient of grace. Because God gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves in the sight of God and He will lift you up. Affliction is God helping you to humble yourself. Learn from Nebuchadnezzar how God may deal with you. Notice the language again. Verse 37. And those who walk in pride world listen, not just covenant people who also could read Aramaic, but all around. And those who walk in pride he is able to put down. When pride comes, then comes shame. Remember that pride is a complete contradiction to the character of Christ and of the Christian. Jesus humbled himself. He washed feet. As a pastor, I love the title, a servant of the servants of God. And my fellow pastors, you ought to love that title too. When I see ministers who love their robes and they love their clerical positions, and they love to be acknowledged as the reverend. Incidentally, don't call me reverend. Now, if you're a minister and you want to be called reverend, you can live with it. But God is a reverend, alone reverend in my book. But when I see that kind of clerical attitude, I don't see the character of Christ. When people ask me, why don't you think you ought to wear a clerical garb? I say, quite frankly, I don't read that Jesus wore it. Jesus humbled himself. And he was humbled for you. And you know one of the great mysteries of the cross? God, who holds all the nations of the earth as but a little drop of condensation on a bucket, became man and became sin. God, who has all authority in heaven and on earth, took to himself the sin of proud people like me who wickedly and arrogantly take to themselves the place of God. 
And he so loved those treasonous people that he bore that sin and conquered it so that we might live for him. That's the mystery of love divine. That's why I love the hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. When I Survey the Wondrous Cross on which the Prince of Glory died. My riches gain, my hanging gardens of Babylon, I count but lost and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, and that's what the world is, a bunch of vain trinkets. I sacrifice them to His blood. And my friends, as you think about Nebuchadnezzar, whose thoughts and whose words and his actions went in the avenue of pride, you check your thoughts and you check your words, all of you. Ministers particularly, all of us. Because the deadly viper of pride raises its slithering head and when it does and it strikes you, you're in danger when the venom of pride is in your spiritual veins. Whoever exalts himself, Jesus says, will be your children. Don't you expect that your children are going to learn what it is to confess sin if you don't model it? But I'm going to be brought down in the estimation of my children. No, no. You'll be lifted up in the estimation of your children because they'll know you're honest. And then they'll be comfortable to be honest when they deal with their own sin. And my fellow pastors, you sin against your people in the way you speak or act. And if you don't have enough humility to ask their forgiveness, I suggest you get out of the ministry. I know myself. I'm a man of many words. God says, where many words are, sin is not absent. And therefore, I must be one who must not infrequently ask forgiveness. Why? Not only because it's right, but because God gives grace to the humble. And whatever else I need and you need, it's the grace of Jesus. Bishop Hall said, I think so far as any man is proud, he is kin to the devil and a stranger to God and to himself. I think so far as any man is proud, he's kin to the devil and a stranger to God and to himself. I think I'm going to write that down and use it sometimes when I have to deal with some proud fellow ministers. You think that's too strong? That's too Puritan. I mean, Bishop Paul was a Puritan. When people snidely say, yeah, that's Puritan, and it comes from an Orthodox Presbyterian, good New Yorker, in your face, I say, would you kindly tell me who wrote the Westminster Standards? That's too strong? I think so far as any man is proud, he's kin to the devil and a stranger to God and to himself. Well, let our final authority speak. My hand has made all things, says the Lord, but on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. Isaiah 66, 2. The most clear, fundamental, and consistent principle of God's dealing with his creatures, God resists the proud but he gives grace to the humble. You want the proof? Nebuchadnezzar 
and Daniel chapter 4. Let's stand and let's pray. O Lord God, whatever else we are before You, please make us a humble people. We pray that You will give us the meekness of Christ, the graciousness of Christ, the servant spirit of Christ. We pray that You will make the cross beat in us that we might see the world through the cross as something dead to us. And may all of its vanities be to us as nothing and less than nothing. May we count it the greatest privilege of grace to humble ourselves before the God of gods, Lord of lords, King of kings, and Savior of saviors, and revel in all of His exhaustless grace given to us. And then, our Lord, may we be lifted up from that humbled state, so filled with the grace of Christ and His humbling work, that when people see us, they might be able to see, say in truth, we have seen Christ, and in being imitators of Him or her, we become imitators of the Savior and Savior. We ask these things in the name of Christ, our glorious, magnificent Lord. Amen.